Welcome to Designing Hollywood. I am your host, Philip Boutet Jr. Um, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to all things movies and the movie industries and its professionals. Our guest today is a well is well known among the movie fans and movie industry professionals. He's an extraordinary film critic and producer. His career in the industry started with blogging back in 2003 with the movie blog, which reached a whopping one million views in a month. He currently has his own movie slash talk uh, news show on YouTube. He's known to analyze, examine, and talk about movies like a sports fan talks about their favorite teams. And at his core, he is a film pundit and fan. Please give a warm welcome to John Campia. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. Um, we usually like to start with just like kind of basic boring question, which is sure. how did you come to this? Like, how did you come to this career path? Oh, wow. Um, so for me, my earliest childhood memory is my mother taking me to see Star Wars. And I have no memories after that for about five years. <laughs> and and so like movies have always kind of been a part of my DNA. Mm -hmm. And so back in, you know, in the early 2000s, I was actually, uh, I was studying law and I was doing a lot of different things, but I decided to start a, a blog. And it was so early in the days that the domain name, the movie blog was available. Right. Never, you yeah, never the, get like, that today. You can't get it now. Yeah. It was available. So I got it as a hobby, just as a way to keep family and friends updated was what I was doing. So I did it as a hobby. And we had like 100 viewers or, or readers my first month. And then that grew and grew and grew. Fast forward a couple of years, I had about a quarter of a million readers. And Time Magazine got a hold of me and asked if they could do an article on me. And That's incredible. that was big. And then, then I had what was called the intervention, where a couple of friends of mine took me out to lunch one day. Mm-hmm and said, I was working in a law firm at the time, and they took me out to lunch and they said, because I just got my, this. that's right, I just got my first check from Google. Okay. I got an advertising <laughs> check from Google for my website for $400. <laughs> and it was such a big deal at the time that the local newspaper, the, the Hamilton Spectator, our big local newspaper, ran an article on it. The front page of the entertainment section. That is, oh my God, this guy's on the internet, he made $400. And so my friends took me to lunch and they said, you need to quit your job. Because this is what you want to do. This is your thing. And so I I had some money saved up. I moved into a zero-bedroom bachelor pad to try to stretch my money. And I figured I can make this go for a year, but I'll give it a shot. Yeah. But it went well, and it grew to a half a million, then to a million, and then eventually AMC Theaters contacted me. They said, will you run this online division we want to do? That's I came incredible. to LA. I started doing with AMC, and, and that's how I got to – that's how I got here. Now – the like I want to go back really quickly because you said I think you share something that a lot of my friends share, which is your your love of Star Wars, which mm. in the sense of like it being one of your first memories. So yeah. many concept artists that work in my field, their main memory that made them want to go into film was being, you know, a kid and looking and watching Star Wars and being like, I need to be a part of whatever this is. For that memory that you have, was that what sparked your love of entertainment as it is now? Like, would oh, you oh. remember sitting in the theater and just being like, "I don't remember a lot of details." Yeah, <laughs> at at five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> but you see, here's the thing though. It it's funny today. Like, is Star Wars the greatest motion picture of all time? No, probably not. Right. But when you go around film professionals, directors, writers, cinematographers, like anybody involved in the industry. 
you'll hear more people talk about that than even like maybe the greatest film of all time, The Godfather, Godfather 2, because right. there was something about the magic of it that teleported you away. The potential of what storytelling can do to an audience member is kind of manifested in a film like Star Wars. And that's why it's amazing today. You still go, what was the big influence on you? A lot of people always mention Star Wars. Correct. And because of that, it made an indelible impact on me that my whole life I just wanted to then sketch and draw. And I, I just wanted to be a part of that world, whether it's storytelling or whatever. Now, I can't draw, but <laughs> um, but I love talking about movies. And, and, and yeah, it was very much a direct descendant of that one film experience. I get so jealous of my friends because I am I'm a bit younger. I was born in 81. So by the time I got Star, Star Wars, it was established and it wasn't that experience for me. Right. Um, but I was sitting in my I, I still remember always sitting in my grandma's living room and watching it on VHS and watching it over and over and over again. So I got that experience of it, just not the initial spark. I think the closest thing for me of feeling super inspired came actually much later in 1999. I went to go to a little comic con convention at the shrine auditorium and a random randomly the whole cast of the matrix showed up oh, i wow. knew nothing about it it was all of them the producers everyone and they're like come see this movie and carrie ann moss is sitting and she's got this very long sweater on with a dress under it and this girl stands up and she's just like i saw the movie last night and you kicked ass and we're like <laughs> her like we're so confused right and so then we go it was me and my friend and they gave us passes to go watch it at Warner Brothers. And we barely got there. We rush in and it's at the part where her hands are up and it's like, freeze, do it, do it now. And she turns around and does that kick and the camera oh, and, yeah. and the sound. And we were just like, what is this? So that's when I remember thinking, like, I need to do something. Yeah. And like, everybody's know, got that, that aha moment, yeah. right? That aha <laughs> moment. And and I think that's part of why, like, I think one of my bucket list moments of my life was because I grew up that way. And right. Because my aha moment was connected to Star Wars, like one of the biggest uh, uh bucket list moments for me was when you know Disney Studios got a hold of me and invited me to go to the premiere of Star Wars The Phantom Menace amazing and uh, that I'm sorry Phantom Menace I'm sorry uh, the uh, the, Force the, Force the Force Awakens The Force Awakens yes. different era yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when they and you know getting to be at you know at the Chinese theater where the original Star Wars played and just sitting there and soaking in the history of it and and for those of us who are who are film fans who have these aha moments that mm -hmm. we we can pinpoint whether it was The Matrix or whether it was Princess Bride or whether it was Stars, when we have these moments we can point Princess to say, Bride. that's when I fell in love and that love never dies. It never dies. Yeah. And that's completely correct. I think film is kind of like in its own way, like a language that you keep adding to and taking away from. Oh, so yeah. I think it's kind of a, it's an ongoing conversation. Um, I think, and I think that I love the fact that you have that. I want to ask you about the show itself. What are some of the, like, I guess, personal triumphs you've gotten from this show? Like, are some things that you've seen as successes that, like, were just kind of, you know, unimaginable or, like, you didn't expect going into this? Wow. I... You know, when I first started working for AMC, because the show I do now, the John Campus show, really is a direct line to, you know, what was Collider Movie Talk, what was AMC Movie Talk. When right. I got hired by AMC at first... It was really just supposed to be like a blog, text articles. And I told them when okay. they first hired me, I said, I'm going to want to evolve this into video. Video really wasn't something that was being done on the internet at the time, at least not to any great extent. And I said, I'm going to want to develop a video show. I want it to be sports center for film fans. And we're going to do this. And it took about a year before they finally gave in and, and said, OK, go ahead, take a shot at this. So they gave 
AMC Burbank 16, which is one of the mm-hmm. busiest movie theaters in the world, they have this big round part of their building that is nothing but a storage closet. So they said, tell you what, Burbank 16, you can have their big storage, storage closet, closet and you can convert that into your studio. That's incredible. I said, great. I moved to Burbank. Okay. Uh, I hired a staff. We set things up and we had this modest idea of like, we want to get like 5,000 viewers of videos a month. And before you knew it, we were getting like 10, 15, 20, 30,000 viewers a day. We started getting the millions of views a month and it just became that thing. Now, when I left AMC, um, AMC then told me they were going to shut down the news division if I wasn't going to be there. Mm -hmm. So in came Complex Media, who owned a, a property called Collider, and they said, well, why don't you come here? And then AMC said to me, well, if you go there, do you want to take your whole operation with you? So we all said, sure. So then yeah. I was able to take my entire, almost my entire staff and yeah. my and, and the brands and the IP that I created. And we took that over to Complex and Collider. And we did that there for a number of years. And we won a number of awards and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it was in that process of, you know, starting as a blog in my buddy's basement. And then I have coming into my studio, Kevin Feige and James Gunn and Chris Pratt, who want to come onto my show yeah. and talk about this new Guardians of the Galaxy movie they have coming out. <laughs> or incredible. when when you know Disney invited me for when Avengers Age of Ultron was coming out and they were going to do their press day and they invited me to come and be the moderator. And I'm, I'm sitting up there. This is actually one of my favorite stories. <laughs> Tell me, this. please. So, I love this. So I'm, I'm standing there and I'm, I'm at the podium and I've got the entire cast of Avengers and Joss Whedon and everybody mm-hmm. else standing there. And Colby Smulders, yes. who, who is in the uh, franchise, she was pregnant at the time. Mm-hmm. And she's a good Canadian girl. I'm mm-hmm. Canadian. By yes. <laughs> so I thought by the time we get to the, to the audience's questions, we've got Chris Evans up here and Chris Hemsworth and, and Scarlett Johansson and, and Robert Downey. No one's going to ask her a question. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'm going to ask her the first question. Okay. And so to everybody's surprise, I put the first question to Colby Smulders. About 20 minutes later, the first question for Robert Downey Jr. comes along and, and I target him. And people have taken this and shared it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And Robert Downey Jr. go before he answers the question, he says, before I say anything else, can I just say that the next time, I don't know if I can swear on here, but it, you yeah. might have to beat me up. He goes, yeah. The next time I'm not asked the first fucking question, I am walking out, <laughs> which was which was like one of the the best experiences. No, but I, I I don't know. It's like a crazy for a Canadian kid who is I listen. I consider myself an absolute nobody who just does happens to do some YouTube stuff. The things I've been privileged enough to be able to to experience and do, whether it's you know I I've got gone in to sit down to interview Vin Diesel, mm-hmm. and him stop the interview and just spend 10 minutes talking about how he's such a big fan of mine, you know, and, and I'm sitting there just peeing myself, mm-hmm. uh, at the notion, but it's still, it's an amazing thing how the, the advancements in technology have allowed fandom and the objects of our fandom to become closer together than ever before. And, and in very many ways intertwined. And so it's made it more real for me and, and more exciting for me. And, and certainly we've won some awards and we've done things like that. But it's, it's those little moments that happen that I get to pinch myself. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's been great. I have to say that there's a natural, um, you have a natural ability. I watched a lot of the videos and like kind of went back to like verse myself in this. And I, I started to see, I feel like why people respond to you is because you're just inherently yourself. You have a natural ability to just be yourself, but also the commentary and your love for film always shows through in what you're talking about. Mm. And you're knowledgeable, which a lot of people just like, 
there's a difference, I think, to like this film conversation, especially people in film. We have it all the time. We're talking about film all the time. We're talking about like different things and different processes and how to go about it and like how the industry is. But then there's a difference between having that conversation and also being knowledgeable and well-versed in that conversation and adding something to it. And so I feel like as a compliment to you, you do that really well and very naturally. <laughs> I think that's more of a testimony to the fact that I haven't had much else going on in my life. For, for, but here's here's the magic of movies and here's the magic of talking about movies. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that I, I, I say all the time is that the magic of film is that regardless of your gender, orientation, socioeconomical background, nationality, it doesn't matter. You can sit down with almost anybody on the planet at any time and talk about Lord of the Rings. Correct. I remember I was at Comic-Con one year and I, I took an Uber somewhere and there was a dude who was my driver, spoke very broken English, but about five minutes into it, we got into this huge discussion about Star Wars. <laughs> and like, what else in can... this world? Like, there's something about us as a species that we have go back to the earliest days of drawings on cave walls. Mm -hmm. We are storytellers. And it is not just something about the ways we we carry on our own stories. It's also a part of, of the function of how we connect with each other. And that's to me is the most amazing thing. So you talk movies and you can talk movies with anybody. And that's you why can. anybody can 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 connect with you when you're doing it. And it's one of the best things as a film fan it's been i think it's one of the it's been my secret weapon at least in terms of i'm not a huge sports fan at all and that usually <laughs> is the big divide like it's the big bridger right so you go anywhere if you're in the barbershop wherever some guy will come up and be like did you check out such and such and i'm just sitting there and i'm going no but i can always bring around did you see right such and such yes and so there's always a good balance of being able to say did you see this movie did you see this show and i can kind of bridge it that way because it's like it's it's the great kind of like it it creates a um it's a great mediator. Oh, it's it's the, you know? the absolute great connector. I yes. Mean, I, you, we just went through a really divisive political. Uh, and you know what? You can walk into a room with the staunchest of Republicans and the staunchest of Democrats, mm -hmm. and they can just geek out together over Avengers. Correct. You know, and that's that's just <laughs> one of the great things about it. I love that too. I think um, one of the things that I I've enjoyed about being in the movie industry is uh, is, is storytelling. How do mm. you? I think in storytelling and kind of figuring out. Um, how to connect to people and how to connect people through their emotions, right? How do you feel that the movie industry, at least in terms of its current um, current status, is doing with that? Like, do you feel like like where it, where it's going? At least in terms of how they're connecting with their audiences. There is something that you'll always get every generation who laments that the current generation isn't as good as the previous. Yeah. But there's something that I feel like over the past 15 years or so, the movie industry has done even better. To me, movies at their core. Are experiential events. We go to the movies to experience something. Correct. Whether it's laughter or fear or adrenaline or uh, thoughtfulness or whatever. And the success of a movie to me as an audience member has always been when I come out of that theater, did it make me feel something? Did did I did I have an experience, whether it's thrilling or horror or whatever? And I feel like a lot of Hollywood today has probably gleaned a little bit more of that. Asian cinema has always done a terrific job yes, at that, has. like making their movies experiential events. And regardless of the status of where the storytelling is at now compared to other eras, that I can't really speak to too much. But mm -hmm. I do know they've done a really good job of making sure they tap in. We go back to the, something big like, say, The Avengers Endgame. Yes. I mean, there's a lot. I love that movie. But there's a lot of fan service in that <laughs> I movie. I worked on right? that movie. There, yeah. there, there's a lot of very... 
Like, I'm sorry, Captain America yells, Avengers! And yeah. then, assemble. Yeah. Like, it's like, who heard that? Nobody, but, but they understood it was about the experience they were giving the audience. Because what audience, when that happened, didn't explode, mm-hmm. right? And that's something I feel like Hollywood and filmmakers today have really grasped onto is whatever experience they, they're trying to relay to the audience. I feel like they're getting more and more skilled at it because I feel I walk out of more movies today than even just like 10 years ago feeling like I experienced something. It may have had a lot of problems, Mm -hmm. but I really felt like I had that experience and I feel like they're getting pretty good at that. I will say too, the same thing. I think especially specifically with that movie, um, I was aware that the experience was completely intact and that it had worked because Mm. it worked on me and I knew what was (laughs) going to happen, at least in terms of I didn't know everything, but I knew a lot. And I think that um, being able to sit in the theater as a fan and be completely surprised while having worked on this film was a testament to the story, the storytelling and the and the filmmaking as well. Um, I often joke and I talk about specifically with what you were talking about in the eras. I. I grew up in the 80s, so it's like I love like uh, like fantastical films, like I love Willow and Neverending oh, Story yeah. and all of those things, right? But I also I I I I long for in storytelling to kind of get back to this time and people are like, what do you mean? It's like I like where we're going, but I also loved like you can put on a lot of the films from that time and they're just transformative, they're emotional. You can put on the John Hughes films, uh, you can put on any of those films and they just kind of take you on a journey every single time. But there was also imaginative play, which I think we're getting back to now, which is you had a movie where it's like, let's see what a movie is like if a mannequin comes to life or let's see if this kid becomes big or let's see, you know, if we this guy dies and these kids take him on an adventure like those types of films. It's just like. I think where we are now, especially because we've had this political division and all of these different things, there's so many things to explore and to talk about. So I'm really excited to see where a film goes now because there's so many different points of view um, and different voices in the room now, like places where we can tell stories and be and have fun. You know? Yeah. I mean, well, look, every movie needs to have its Falcor and a luck dragon. Yes. Like every <laughs> every movie has to have something in it to that level that if you, I, I call it propositional narrative. Yes. Which is like like you're just saying, mm-hmm. a mannequin comes to life, what what happens? happens? Yeah. You know, something or even born supremacy. A boat in the middle of the ocean comes across a guy just floating in the ocean with no other ship around. Right. What's that about? You know, right. it, it's when movies can connect with that. And I think you're right. They're like that era that we grew up in, like watching films of the 80s, mm-hmm. early 90s. They really did lean on that a lot. But it creates an anchor with us mm-hmm. and sticks with us for decades. It sticks with you. There's points where I can call my mom and my mom is like crying. And I'm like, Mom, are you watching Still Magnolias again? And she's like, yes. I'm like, why did you do that to yourself? Yep. But every single time it happens to her. You know, so she, it's like it's like going on the adventure. I think the film for me that's like that is probably um, Shawshank Redemption. Oh, it's my like, top three favorite film. OK, so time. speaking of that, what are your top five films? I don't like to Roughly. give things in order, yes. but but uh, uh, occupying up there, Shawshank Redemption is is one of them. No matter when it's on, no matter when I catch it, I will watch it all the way through. I <laughs> I mean, there's something about the dynamic between Morgan Freeman. I, I mean, look, when we're talking about Red and you're talking about all these Andy Dufresne and San Juanejo and whatever else, I mean, there's something, again, experiential event. Exactly. You cannot tell me you walk out of a film and not had just a, an emotional like crushing experience in there mm-hmm. i thought it was fantastic so i count the original star wars trilogy as one film correct i count the original the uh the first three lord of the rings films as one, one film. film uh now i've got the top 10 but what would i say were five so i've already said shawshank redemption in there 
Um, you can expand. Give me, give me your just your thoughts. Uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Okay. Uh, is up there. Um, I'll def. I'll, I'll put The Godfather in yep. in the top five. The one film that my top ten list is one that everybody looks at, and while not everybody agrees, mm-hmm. it's all like, oh yeah, that's a good one, and that's good. The one film I have in my personal top ten that makes people look at me strange is the speaking of Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. the Clancy Brown, Sean Connery, Christopher Lambert film, The Highlander. The Highlander, the original Amazing. Highlander, <laughs> okay. is one of my top ten favorite films because, like Falcor and the Luck Dragon, mm-hmm. it was a movie that I watched to me that blew my imagination. Right, and it has never let me. And then the second film is one of the most horrendous, you know, pieces of garbage <laughs> ever made in history. But that first one is in there, so that's an odd one for me. That you know what? That's actually pretty good though, because I think everyone's got that one film where your friends look at you. It caught you. You have to. You have you to, have, have, to have that one thing in there. But it also it catches you at the perfect time, at the perfect moment. Yes. And then whatever that magic is, you don't let it go. Whereas anybody else that's kind of coming into it later, just it, they, they missed it. They won't get it. I took some friends uh, with my family. We took them to Disneyland years ago, like when our kids were still like pretty little. Um, like then my daughter was probably like three or four and we go to Disneyland and Captain EO is still there and we take <laughs> our friends they're from like you know uh, North and South Carolina have never been to see this thing specifically and so we're sitting there and me and my wife like we have very fond memories of watching this thing like because we watched it when we were little it was back when Michael Jackson was like the top of the top like it's <laughs> like could do no wrong and they're sitting there in the theater and the music starts going and they are just, they look mortified and they're just like, what is this? Then the theater starts doing this thing because they've, they've upped it. So now the theater starts bouncing and moving right. to the music <laughs> and they're just sitting there and the look of confusion, we still laugh at it to this day. They were like, what is this? And they were like, it's amazing. And they were like, we have no idea what this was. <laughs> it's like bringing newcomers to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Exactly, and, exactly. And they, you know, I, I love what you just said there about how the fact that certain movies will hit you in a certain way when you're in a certain place in your life. Correct. There's a film like that for me that's incredibly special, and it's a weird one to say, but I have a very, very deep emotional connection to this film, which was uh, Kevin Smith's Clerks 2. Clerks 2. The reason was, at that time, I was living in uh, central Canada at the time, and I was thinking about moving back to the East Coast, but I had built a real community of friends and, and circles there. And in Clerks 2... Our main protagonist is wrestling with moving away from his friends and life because of a career. Right. And I was facing at that same moment that exact same question. And I remember I came out of Clerks 2, which was hilarious and wonderful. It's Mm -hmm. my favorite Kevin Smith film, that and Chasing Amy. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was almost in tears coming out of it. And my friends were like, what's wrong with you? It's just exactly where I'm at right now. And so that's a great example. It it just, (laughs) when when you come across a movie that speaks to you emotionally where you are at that moment, that never leaves you. You can't. Yeah, yeah, it literally stays. I think my love of like certain things. There'll be certain things where they caught me just at the right period or just at the right time. Um, I remember even just like when you spoke about Joss Whedon, uh, Buffy. I watched Buffy, oh, the yeah. Vampire Slayer. Great character development. Awesome show. But also the year of school she was in parallels my my journey exactly. Oh, that's So funny. it was also fun to grow up specifically right. with those characters. And they were also shooting sometimes near the high schools that were near our school. So it was like just this interesting moment in time where it's like a time capsule where I remember the songs and I remember all the things that were going on. Um, but then some of my other friends, they go and watch it and they just completely miss the whole thing. Or they right. just it doesn't connect the same. Um, so I like that. Um, do you have a favorite movie genre? I, I probably look, I, 
I like them all. Like I like period pieces and I like deep drama and I love documentary and I love, but I, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say sci-fi action. I yeah. mean, that's, that's the first thing that's that attracts love. me. Like when, when I'm sitting down at night and I decide to scroll through Netflix or Hulu or Disney plus, that's the first stuff I'm kind of looking for. Is there something in the genre that hasn't been there for me yet? But so I like them all, but I'd be lying if I didn't say like the sci-fi adventure stuff. Sci-fi adventure is my favorite too. I think even to work, to work in um i enjoy i think especially when you're dealing with because i primarily work in costumes so i'm dealing with characters all the time right. and like kind of developing those and super suits and all that stuff i think there's a fun balance of trying to find out who these people are and then expanding upon them past them just being like well this person just goes out and he, you know he's crazy or he's a superhero he controls whatever it's fun to be like but who are they right and then like why would they put on what they wear um so i think it is a fun genre just to explore in general and then along with the themes and everything else and and there's so much sci-fi coming out right now oh, in yeah. terms of just like, I mean, like Dune. I mean, like there's so many things that are coming oh, don't, out. Don't even get me going on <laughs> Dune. But he, the, the key to the survival of the genre, and like you said, there's so much stuff coming out mm -hmm. right now. Like there's probably 12, 13, 14 comic book based things on television right now. Correct. The key is the genre is still in its very early infancy in many in many different ways, particularly when you talk specifically about the, the superhero genre on the screen. What we have seen in the last couple of years is the genre maturing to the sense that they understand that we cannot just be comic book fair. Like there were there were decades when anything that came out in theaters that was comic book related, it was strictly comic book fair. Correct. What we are seeing now in a lot of these films, including the ones you've worked on, mm -hmm. is we are seeing the the merging of and experimenting with various genres. So you go to a Captain America, the Winter Soldier, and you're looking at a 1970s political thriller. Right. You go to Ant-Man and you're seeing a heist film. You go to a certain, you go to even like New Mutants, yeah. uh, which yeah. wasn't all that great, but it's a combination of that and a horror, and a horror film. horror film, right. You get comedy, you, you know, you get action. And so as the 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 genre itself begins to mature you're going to see a lot more of these branches of of mixturing with subgenres and that's what just keeps it fresh and original like my fa three favorite all three of my favorite things on TV right now particularly mm -hmm. in the comic genre are these three completely bonkers non-mainstream shows it's doom patrol Yep. Um, it's the Umbrella Academy mm -hmm. and it's uh, The Boys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Such a good list. <laughs> so, and all three of these are absolutely bonkers and they are nothing alike. Like The Boys is nothing like Doom Patrol and Doom Patrol is nothing like the Umbrella Academy. Mm -hmm. Ten years ago, three shows like that on air would be very, very similar in their DNA. Today, they're wildly, wildly different from each other. And uh, they, they just create their own experiences. And that's why I love all three of them. So I don't know if you watch Doom Patrol. But I'm I telling you, one of my favorite episodes of television in the last 10 years is The Sex Men. Yeah. <laughs> the Sex Men is one of the strangest, weirdest pieces of content I've seen on television ever. And and yet it's yet in the middle of ghost orgies. <laughs> in this episode, these two failed fathers sit down and, actually, and lamenting yeah, yeah. their weaknesses as dads. Right. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, what how, happened here? Yeah. yeah. How do you have something so deep veiled in something so completely nuts? And it's it's just part of where I love this genre is going. Those are literally the best episodes too. When you go to a show for one thing and you're just like, wow, I actually I cared about that, or I actually, you know, um, in the middle of it, like it could be a complete com comedic series, and then in the middle of it, there's an episode where I'm like, wow, I actually that 
felt like I feel for them or something or vice versa, where you're just like, how did this happen in the middle of these ghost orgies? No, no, and exactly. Whether it's <laughs> like staying on Doom Patrol, there's, I forget the name of the street now, but there's this living conscious street. Right. That all these crazy things are happening. But when you get to the core of what those episodes are about, yeah. it's incredibly deep. You look at something like The Boys with all the every ridiculous oh, thing yeah. that happens but at the end there's serious social commentary going on in each and every single episode uh, i mean an umbrella academy is just a oh just a feast of narrative storytelling and and like classic uh struggles that various types of characters face it's just again the way the genre is continuing to mature it's just very very exciting for a fan like me i love that i and i also i'm going to give a quick shout out to laura jean shannon because she costume designs both the boys and oh. doom patrol so <laughs> oh, I, i'd be remiss to, to not give her a shout out um but i want to move gear i want to switch gears now because sure. we could talk about this all day long um i'm going to read just forgive me because i want to actually get this right you have a new documentary coming out that you wrote and directed called movie trailers a love story and it examines the creation and evolution of movie trailers and their passionate yet sometimes complicated relationship with film fans. Um, trailers play such an important part of the success in all movies. It's one of it's the one chance that we get uh, to where fans are excited about a movie. So tell us about this documentary. Um, every once in a while, I like to actually get involved in making a project because I think it deepens my pre as a film fan, as a film pundit, it deepens my appreciation for the people who make real movies, mm -hmm. you know? But about a year or so ago, uh, I was doing some research. And, you know, when you go to Amazon and you look up a book on woodworking, you're gonna yeah. find 500 pages of books uh, on, woodworking. on woodworking. I remember when I went to Amazon to look up movie trailers, books about movie trailers, there were literally two books. I was gonna say, if that. Two books yeah. that I found in existence. Now maybe there are more out there, but I could only find two. And I remember thinking, like literally a trailer comes out the day I was thinking about it, a big trailer had come out and the it was on the front page of CNN. Mm -hmm. This trailer drops. We're talking about commercials. And I've always been fascinated by the wild enthusiasm and, and energy and excitement. Like, look, here's a point of fact that we bring up in the documentary. Mm -hmm. In last year, the number one trailer was Avengers Endgame trailer one it had something like 389 million views in the first 24 hours. Right. That's more than triple the amount of people that watched the Super Bowl, the highest rated television wow. event of the year. Wow. Just for perspective, yeah. for a commercial. Right. For a trailer. For a trailer, the excitement for it. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, you know, people will, will rush into theaters. They have like 25 minutes of trailers that play in a movie theater before a movie will start. And so when you go back in the history of it, mm -hmm. it it's so fascinating because movie trailers in their hundred years of existence they are essentially the exact same as they've always been. It's a series of images mm -hmm. and titles and music meant to entice you and to draw us, give us a taste of a movie to entice us to come back and watch it, whether it's in a theater or on a television screen or whatever. Mm -hmm. And really in a hundred years, they really haven't changed. Correct. And I just remember I'm fascinated. And what I was really fascinated with, and the reason we called the movie trailers a love story, yes. was this really awkward but passionate relationship trailers have with fans yeah and because we get so excited about trailers i mean one of the biggest genres on youtube in the world is the trailer reaction videos yeah i mean makeup videos tra trailer reaction trailer videos reaction. and you know and yet trailers can very much upset us 
they can annoy us. Why did you give that away? Why did you give so much? Uh, right. and, and actually, you know, the, the the documentary itself is broken into chapters and it has 12 chapters and three of the chapters are on problems. And those problems are giving too much away, uh, deceptive mm-hmm. trailers that, that maybe mislead us about the movie mm-hmm. and too many trailers. So, right. And so I really want to take a look at it from the history of it, how it evolved and developed, but also specifically our that's the story of it is our relationship with as it's grown and changed. And we look at some hallmark moments mm-hmm. in history of real pivotal turning points for movie trailers in history. I mean, I'm, I don't want to give too much away, but no. Yeah, there's please. there's one chapter where we talk specifically about uh, the Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. Star Wars, the Phantom Menace. I you could make the argument and I will make the argument is probably the most important trailer of all time. And even though it's to a terrible movie, uh, but that's, that's a subject for another time. But what you got to understand is when the Phantom Menace trailer came out, there was no YouTube. Yeah. If you wanted to see the Phantom Menace trailer, you had to buy a ticket to go, go to see theater. Meet Joe Black. Oh. And it was the first time in history that movie theaters started packing out the trailer because people knew the Phantom Menace trailer was playing with this movie. And they have to go. The movie would, pl- the trailers would play mm-hmm. and half the theater would leave. Right. So what the movie theater started to do when they saw everybody was leaving, they started advertising Phantom Menace trailer will play at the beginning and at the end of the film. And so they started playing the trailer twice wow. to keep people from leaving. Right. And they would put it on twice. It's never, it had never happened before. And it's really the first time when the movie trailer became the main event as opposed to the proverbial wingman it became the main event right um and um it's just little things like that that we just kind of discovered as we went through uh just became fascinating for me and i I think people who are fans of film are going to find this pretty interesting i was going to say when i started to look up and started to see what you had done here i i had to take a look back and realize my wife my friends all of them know if you go to the movies with phil you must be on time oh you must get there early because I, it literally ruins the experience for me if I miss the trailers or if we come in in the middle of them. I, I like sitting there. Like I'll probably eat most of my food before I get to the, the, the to the actual movie itself. Me too. And I'm sitting there enthralled with these trailers. So I, I understand the love of them. I also understand there was one thing that you said that actually brought up a memory for me just now, which was thinking about when a, a trailer is successful or when it when it gives the perfect amount uh, away or lack thereof and i remember watching the trailer um for for from dust till dawn mm. and robert Rodriguez. yeah and not was that tarantino uh i think it was rodriguez it was rodriguez, yes, it, was it, was rodriguez. rodriguez. it was rodriguez and watching the trailer but the trailer gave no part or no hint at all that there was any vampires or anything in it at all. So it just felt like a caper, like, you know, these two brothers, they're on the run, you know, they're uh, bank robbers or whatever they were. And it just, it felt like that. And so already just seeing Quentin Tarantino in it and seeing that I was like already into it. I was like, Oh, it's going to be like a dialogue heavy movie. This is caper. It's like him. They're going to be going together. And that was it. So to go to the theater and then have it randomly shift in the middle to this vampire thing, I was like, what is going on? And I thought it was the best thing ever. But the trailer literally, the trailer got me to the theater regardless. And I thought that was the best thing. It got me to the theater without even having to to give that part away. Um, and I was already excited for it. So then I remember that whole experience from the trailer all the way up leading to the movie and being completely surprised, excuse me, in the middle of the theater. 
about yeah. that. I was like, wait, what's going? Wait, what's going on? There's vampires. Like <laughs> this isn't, you know, like you know, this isn't another kind of like a like a um, a Reservoir Dogs or anything like that. Like, what are we doing? Like, what's happening? And I remember the trailer completely setting it up. So it was actually an example of a trailer not giving anything away and actually kind of misleading you in the best way possible. Right. And now that that brings up though this precarious line that trailers have to walk because yeah. in on one hand as a trailer you've got to give the trailer is the packaging on the box and on Correct. the best buy shelf yes you've got to tell the audience to a degree mm -hmm. what is it they're buying what into are you buying? when you, when we ask you to come and invest some of your money and some of your time to come and watch our movie we got to tell you what is it you're getting yourself into but then there's a line where you don't want to give away too much and some movies want to keep some really really big things hidden and so you get this constant battle like a great example of this is uh blade runner 2049 the yes. Villeneuve new film fabulous movie mm -hmm. horrible marketing campaign <laughs> horrible marketing. that movie flopped and the reason it flopped and i remember leading up to the movie i kept telling everybody this movie's going to have problems mm -hmm. when it comes to getting audiences up because the trailers never told anybody what is this movie like, about what is it yeah, just right. just on the basic level what is it now some people then respond and say well do you want them to give everything away no it's not an either or there is a happy middle ground and then you get some movies like oh what was the one with lakeith um was it sorry to bother you sorry to bother you that's right. boots riley with us right the trailers led me to feel like I was getting myself into one kind of movie. And I think maybe I was just mentally prepared for a certain type of movie because I love the cast and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it just looked really charming and funny. And then I went in there and I'm like, this is not the movie. And maybe, maybe if the trailers had really conveyed what the what the DNA of the movie was. It set it up. Maybe for... I would have had a different experience with it, you know? But that's the very fickle and and delicate and dangerous game of making movie trailers. I have such respect for people who can make trailers because how do you find that line? Right. And then properly straddle it so you're not going too much one way, not going too much another, saving an element of surprise and delight for the audience, but at the same time telling them what they're getting in for. I, I'll sit here and complain about it because that's what we film fans do. We bitch and complain. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. We're right. great at it. Right. But... I don't know how to do it. I mean, it's, it's no, it's very really, it's a very delicate skill, balance. Man, skill. It's a delicate balance because I think specifically, like with that film, I enjoyed the film but didn't see the trailer. But then when I saw the trailer, see, the, I wish the, that was true of me. But then when I saw the trailer, the trailer did Boots a disservice because. Boots is more like, like to me, he's like the black Michelle Gondry. Like he's like, he's got this like quirky kind of fun, imaginative quality. The trailer kind of showed it, but it kind of misled a little bit. But I felt like the film itself, watching it with no context, I was just like, I just felt like I went on the ride. But I understand what you're saying completely. Yeah, see, another, another great movie, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ryan Gosling, again, good Canadian kid, Ryan Gosling's film Drive. Yes. Wonderful movie. Yeah. Wonderful movie. Great movie. There were lawsuits over that movie's marketing campaign. There were lawsuits about wow. these trailers because the trailers made you think, hey, this is a, a Fast and the Furious action, right. whatever. That's what they marketed. And it was so not, wrong yeah, that they're that. to this day ongoing lawsuits regarding that, that fans actually took them to court for having these like massively wow. misleading trailers. But the movie is great. I, I mean, oh God, there's, I, I don't want to go into everyone that no, we no, talk about sure. in the movie, but but yeah, it happens, man. It happens. <laughs> um, I want to see if I can ask you, is there, what do you, is there anything in, in particular that you feel 
um, will make a uh, like what makes a good movie trailer? What are the qualifications for that? Like at least in terms of what do you think makes a good trailer? Okay, on a vague note, this is what I say all the time about trailers. The job of a trailer fundamentally is to take your excitement level about an upcoming film, no matter how high that excitement is or how rock bottom low it is, and just nudge it up a couple of notches. I think ultimately when it comes down to it, trailers are like movies. They are their own self-contained pieces of art. Mm -hmm. And like movies that we were just talking about, they have to give you an experience. If a trailer can give you that experience, then it will hook you in. Great example of this, a mediocre film, but uh, Rachel McAdams' film, another good Canadian kid, mm -hmm. Rachel McAdams' film, um, Red Eye. You watch that trailer, mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, girl at the airport, she's got this crazy flight she's got to take, and she meets this guy who seems handsome. I think it was Killian Murphy, is handsome oh, and charming. Sorry, like, I already know where that's going. Yeah, <laughs> is handsome and charming and stuff like that. And, like, and the trailer ends... With I, th I think if I remember correctly, Killian Murphy kind of turning to the camera, the window of the airplane, the camera, and his eyes are all red. And it's like, what the hell is this? And they just gave you that. Now, of course, right. that was completely misleading because he's not some supernatural character right. like the trailer led you to believe. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that trailer, it gave you that experience. Right. And whether that experience is a thrill ride like an Infinity War trailer or whether that experience is like, what? Like that trailer did. A trailer has got to, it can't just be a collection of clips of things that come in the movie. It's got to give you an experience. It's got to give you that wonderment. It's got to yeah. give you some kind of feeling. And when a trailer can make you feel something, you're hooked. That's completely right. I think that, I think you, you get to that point where as soon as you feel like it's like you can't, it gives you that, that little spark enough to be able to get you to the theater. It's like yeah. perfect packaging, right? Yep. Like, and I think that's something that I, I think I often, at least in my work, I visually, visuals to me are so important, but I see them, like we see them everywhere. And I think people take them for granted. They're on billboards, they're on your box of cereal. They're like, they're everywhere. You're bombarded with them all day long. And I think that trailers are like the perfect visual or should be the perfect visual component to this thing that they want you to come see. Like you must, it must grab you. And you're yeah. right, it's a very hard job to And do. when you make a trailer like Blade Runner 2049, oh. and you're not even, I mean, it's, gorgeous to look at but when you're not even telling the audience what it's about how can i feel anything when i have no I, i'm just looking at a collection of very pretty images yeah and it's got to be there it felt that one that i remember that marketing campaign and feeling something similar as i was like i was like i knew i was like i'm in no matter what because it's blade runner but i think that they depended even on trailer the wise, on the brand name yeah. itself and it's like but i still there's lots of people that don't have that like I, i'm sorry Blade Runner is awesome, but there's lots of people that grew up that don't, they don't know. Or oh, yeah, just, it's also decades old. Yeah, it's decades old. So <laughs> yeah. it's like you're either in it, like lots of my film friends, everyone's like Blade Runner, Blade Runner, Blade Runner. And I remember even for me, the first, one of the first big jobs I got was the first, it was the reboot of Star Trek with J.J. Abrams. Oh, and right. And my boss was Michael Kaplan, who designed Blade Runner. So I remember thinking like, oh my God, Blade Runner, <laughs> like I was so excited, right? But I know that that's a very kind of niche, like singular, like, you know, past being a nerd. I was like, there's so many people that don't like they just don't pay attention. So you have to grab them in that trailer and show them like, what is this movie about? Yeah, absolutely. Even showing I think one of I had a friend that said the same thing similarly about the trailer. And I think right before the movie release, they showed uh, a clip 
the clip is what got him to go to the theater, right. but not yeah. the trailer. The clip was, um, I think it's when, um, uh, I forget the guy from Guardians. Dave Batista. Dave Batista. It was that clip where it's kind of like they're talking back and forth and he kind of realizes that he's like a robot or whatever. Yeah. Or like, I forget what they're called. But replicant. Replicant. Yeah, there you go. And he realizes he's a replicant and that scene, the emotion and the tension built in that scene is what got my friend to actually go to the theater, but not the trailer. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so That says something. <laughs> um, will you be hosting a private screening for your documentary? I wanted to. I mean, look, this 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 pandemic mm-hmm. uh, and and be- listen I'm completely cognizant of the fact that we were talking about very 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 first world problems mm-hmm. uh, and I always caution my my listeners that when we talk about the ben- pandemic in terms of the entertainment business we, we acknowledge we are talking about this little box that we're all in here mm-hmm. right outside of the box are much much bigger problems but inside our box yeah uh, I mean this this year has just been a giant F you to everything that we love. <laughs> I mean, it's just all been, of it. <laughs> it. It has been. And so, I mean, from like my favorite thing in the world, like I, I kid you not, is movie going experiences. My, my absolute favorite thing in the world is the movie going experience. Yeah. Every day I wake up knowing that I'm going to go to a movie that day in a theater with other people is just a good day. Yeah. You know, and I have missed, I drove three and a half hours to Las Vegas so I could go see New Mutants at see, a theater there. I mean, yeah. that's, and I, I drove three and a half hours, saw the movie, and didn't stay, back. turned around, wow, drove right back. Amazing. I drove seven to eight hours. That's how badly I missed it. Yeah. And so I, there is nothing more. I mean, I was planning on doing a first, first cut screening of this at uh, Comic-Con this year. Yes. And obviously that came and went. Not that I would have been able to screen it because the pandemic hit and a lot of things like I was, like guys, like people who aren't in my, Document like yeah. guys like Freddie Prince Jr. and stuff yeah. like that. Just the pandemic hit, and you know they've got kids, and you mm-hmm. know schedules get, and so it just really threw a roadblock in what I was doing. So I would love nothing more. That I even had a big Canadian theater chain get in touch with me and ask if I wanted to do something there, but then that fell away when we realized the pandemic wasn't it's going, just not anywhere. going anywhere. So I, for now, no. I mean, maybe in six months. Well, just for my viewers and stuff mm-hmm. like that, we'll we'll book a theater here in LA and we'll do something fun like that. But unfortunately, I just had to accept that there's no even symbolic premiere in person for us. Where do you, that brings up my question of just thinking about where do you see theaters and stuff going, especially now that we've been in this pandemic for this long? That's a very long answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I theaters are not in good shape. Yeah. The movie theater experience, as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Christopher Nolan, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, doesn't matter, Scorsese, whatever. Filmmakers really, even when they know they're making something that's going to go direct to video mm-hmm. one way or another, when a filmmaker is making a film, they are envisioning in their heads, sitting in a big theater with people watching a the theater. It is the way movies are meant to be seen and how they are best experienced. I go back to Avengers Endgame a lot, but that moment, can you imagine having your first experience of that movie when Mjolnir, the hammer, is flying through the air and it whizzes past Thanos and Thor and lands in Chris Evans's hands as Captain America and that explosion that happens in the theaters. The with this, cheering. Yeah, you, you can't, I don't care how big your crappy TV at home is, you can't replicate that. That is where movies will always be fantastic and wonderful but the magic of movies happens when you're in that theater with other people laughing and crying and jumping out of your seat and so 
I say all that yeah. to say I think the movie theater experience is doomed. And it used to be because, oh, the movie theater experience is in trouble because of the pandemic. Yeah. They're not going to be able to survive financially. And that is still a true right. danger. But now the bigger danger comes from places like Disney and Warner Brothers that Disney did a massive restructuring a little while ago. Yeah. And Bob Chapek, the new CEO of Disney, said very clearly, the purpose of the restructuring was to repurpose our company to put our top priority on direct-to-consumer content. Yeah. That means Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, and Hulu, and whatever else they come along with later on. And the financial model is undeniable. The yeah. financial model of that just makes it. Uh, they're projected by the end of 2023 to be making $7 billion a year in profit. Not revenue. Right, profit. profit. To put that in context, in 2019, Disney as a whole... Parks, experiences, vacations, movies, everything else. Disney as a whole in 2019 made $11 billion in profit. By the end of 2023, they're saying this one branch alone will make, wow. will make them $7 billion in profit. So I cannot blame Disney for that. Yeah. But when we see, like Disney just announced that they've taken their live action Tom Hanks Pinocchio film. Yeah. They've just taken their um, 101 Dalmatians Cruella yeah. movie with Emma Stone mm -hmm. and one other one. I can't remember. And they just announced they're putting that direct to streaming. They just took Soul and put it direct to streaming. Direct to streaming. And it's not just because of the pandemic. Yeah. It's because in one year, Disney has amassed 73 million subscribers yeah. in their first year of operation. Yeah. One third of what Netflix has accumulated in 12 years. In 12 years, right. And they did it without putting out any premium original content Correct. other than one season of, of Mandalorian. Mandalorian. Yeah. <laughs> so long term, the problem, the challenge that movie theaters are going to be facing is that even though it is to our loss and to our detriment, they have simply found an economic model, the subscription-based model, is you're going to get Disney, which put out $8 billion films in 2019. Yeah. They're not going to release them in theaters anymore. Yeah. And without those things, and, and, and movie theaters, as somebody who used to work with AMC theaters, mm -hmm. movie theaters operate on a razor-thin margin. Right. Razor-thin margin. You suddenly take out the 15 potentially biggest movies of the year. That's the difference between a profitable year and companies going out of business right. for the movie theaters. So, look, movie theaters, I've been saying lately, are like records. The record, the era of the record player is gone, yeah. and the era of records is gone. They're still around, right? But it, that's what's going to be like with movie theaters. The movie theaters will still be there to some degree or another, but the era of the movie theater experience is probably coming to an end in the next few years. It, I, I, hearing you say that, especially with all the stats and everything, it's it's a fear of mine only because you know what it reminds me of in a in a smaller way. Um, it reminds me of it's almost like. It's like there's that quote where it says something like at some point, like I think someone said it's like at some point you went outside to play with your friends not knowing that it was literally the last time. Like or right. like yeah. that kind of thought process. It's also um it reminds me of the death of the arcade. Yes. Like I used to love going to the arcade and I used to love putting your coins up there and it was so, you know, and like just random people that you may or may not ever see again. Like someone was randomly in town visiting a friend and now you're playing the Street Fighter game against them or whatever. And it's this epic battle and everyone's there and it's just it's it's a moment like these little pockets of moments of time yep. and movies kind of provide that experience. I think even for me, nostalgic wise, 
what I loved about going to the movies or what I love about going to the movies is, A, I love going at least weekly to go see something. That was my thing. So, like, not having it right now has been the same thing, just detrimental, just I'll say it's horrible. It's horrible. It sucks. Um, And then I also, like, for whatever reason, because I like to go early, it makes me feel um, nostalgic in the sense that there's so many moments that people won't recognize or remember because technology has sped up. Like... I used to love going to the movie theater because you'd be standing in line waiting for this movie. So you're waiting to go into the theater and you'd strike up random conversations with whoever was there. Now everyone's on their phones or whatever. But like before it was like you could talk to the old man and you could say like, oh, I'm going to see this movie. And then he talked to you about his love of it or whatever. So I love little moments like that. And it just feels like they're slowly but surely getting less and less and less. And then with the theater now, like being able to go and sit in the theater and actually enjoy it. I just I think that there are certain things like you said that moment where the hammer comes by and 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 uh, captain america grabs it and you realize i knew that moment was going to happen and i still <laughs> i still ye- got up and yelled something some expletive I, I yelled something in the theater itself just be like yes like you know whatever it was you feel it no it's, need, it's crazy because you like, gotta I have that i don't mean to be crude yeah. or anything like that but you know Male biology kicks in for me yeah, when yeah. I see that scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's got, just yeah. you just feel like and that's, you live for that in right. the movie theater, whether it's that movie or it's Batman or it's it doesn't matter. I mean, it's and that 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 again, it's the X factor of being in that theater, right. With all these people, that's where the magic comes. Yes. And I just really lament that I fear we're going to lose that I, magic. I don't want to lose it. You can feel it. There's so many moments, too, where you think about it. Like, I remember laughing hysterically so hard that I was crying at the South Park movie in the oh, theater yeah. with everyone. To the point Blame where Canada. all of us literally, yes, all of us <laughs> literally had to go see it again because we couldn't hear what was going on because the theater was laughing so much. I had the same experience yeah. <laughs> with... Um, uh, Seth Rogen, James Franco. This is the end. This is the I end. Yeah. I, had this, I had to see it again because I missed so much because I was laughing, laughing so, so hard. hard. But like having so, I could talk to you about this part forever. But I, I think <laughs> I don't want to lose that. And also, just some movies are made so cinematically that you must see them bigger. Oh, absolutely. You know, so I, absolutely. I'll, it'll be interesting. I think maybe we go high end. Some of the theaters will turn into like if you want to go to this experience. I just hope we don't lose the movie making. I the agree. Movie experience overall. I'm pessimistic, but I'm keeping yeah, my fingers yeah, crossed. Yeah. I'm keeping hope alive. Well, we're almost we're close to being done. So I want to say, is there anything else that you would like to tell us about your movie trailers? You know, debut other than it, we're, it's coming out Thursday. It's coming out this Thursday. This th- It'll be available in the U.S. and the U.K. and in certain other markets available for rent on Amazon, but worldwide it will be available on Vimeo. Um, you know, we did we we worked really hard to make sure we had a real mixture of people. We have film directors, film writers, film critics, trailer reactors, screenwriters. I mean, we try to get a real neat mix, and and the people who actually make the trailers themselves. Mm-hmm. We had a whole bunch of them all together, and I just hope when uh, people give it give it a shot and check it out, and I hope that when you do, if you're a film fan, that you find it as interesting as uh, as we did making it. I really hope you guys will tune in and support this as well. Um, one of the key things that we also talk to our viewers and listeners about, because a lot of people are trying to learn, is kind of passion, right? And you can tell that John has a passion for this so much so that it kind of took him 
off the course of where he was into doing exactly what he wanted to do. So I want to encourage you guys all to think about those those things when you're thinking about the goals that you have for what you want to do career wise or whatever. Just listen to the thing. I guess it's the thing that you can do the most naturally that you love to do and finding a way to turn it into something amazing. Yeah. Um, I want to thank John for coming um, to our viewers tuning into this episode. Um, we want to just say that John is seriously one of the best movie pundits, not only on YouTube, but in the cinematic world. So check out the John Campia daily show on YouTube and especially his new documentary movie trailers, a love story. So make sure you guys please go and check that out. Um, John, where can people find you on social media or where, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, whatever. It's all just simply at John Campia. So go to at John Campia. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Marilyn Vance, who wants to give a shout out to Mason and Vartan. Um, who are huge John Campia fans. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I also want to thank, uh, we want to thank our sponsors, um, which we have Warner Brothers Studio Costume House. Um, and thank you to them. They are a one-stop resource for productions, costume needs in the film industry and movie professionals. Uh, you can find me, your host, Philip Boutte, on, at, uh, or on Instagram at, at Phil underscore Boutte. Um, and... Thank you so much for joining us, John. Thank you. This has we been great. appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you to our sponsor, Warner Brothers Studios Costume House, a one-step resource for your production costume needs in the film industry and movie professionals. Warner Brothers Costume House features over 60,000 square feet of highly organized and easily accessible costumes. Thank you to our viewers. Be sure to follow Designing Hollywood Podcasts on social media and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Deezer, and YouTube channel for complete past and current episodes. Also, now available on Amazon and Siri Voice Search.